Thank you, Laura. As I introduce this sermon, uh, these sermons in this series, every single week we go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus is standing on a hillside. He's got a group of people gathered around him. They're anything but people that you and I would consider to be the cream of the crop or society that we would find to, uh, to be able to accomplish great things. And Jesus looks at that forlorn uh, group of people and says a couple of outlandish things. He looks at them and he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And who would look at a group like that, impoverished as they were, no socio-political standing, no political connections, and say, you are the light of the world? He, He went even further and he said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He called them a city on a hill. Uh, What's interesting is that if you were to find the cities in Jesus' day that perhaps could receive the designation city on a hill, you would travel across the Mediterranean Sea and find yourself perhaps in Corinth. Maybe you would go to Ephesus uh, where the, the Ephesians lived. Or most likely you would go to Rome since that was the city of the emperor and that that the emperor who ruled most of the known world at the time. But Jesus didn't go to any of those places. He looked at that group of people and said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Paul takes up the task in Ephesians 2, he takes up the task in this passage of explaining how in the world that came to be. How did it come to be? Because we know it happened, and the reason we know it happened is that was 2,000 years ago. That was a ragtag group of people, and 2,000 plus years later, millions of people are meeting all around the world today, calling uh, themselves, and they are those who know Christ the church. And so this ragtag group of people became a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. And Paul is going to tell us how that came to be. And in order for us to get it, he tells us three simple things. Number one, remember who you were. Number two, know who Christ Jesus is. And number three, know who you are. Remember who you were, know who Christ Jesus is, and know who you are. And that's how he uh, packs this, uh, these 11 or 12 verses are jam-packed with great theology. What does he say in verse 11? Therefore, and the therefore is there in light of verses 1 through 10. Because in 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul has said, you were this, but God, and now you are. And he says, therefore, in light of God's redemptive, awesome work, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands... Remember that you were at that time. So he says, remember twice. Two times he says, you need to recall who you were. And he gives them some designations. The first of all is Gentiles in the flesh. Now here's what's interesting. The Ephesians are pretty far removed from Israel. They really do not have a proper perspective of the Jewish designation of them as Gentiles. All right, but in a Jew's mind, any non-Jew was considered to be a Gentile. 
And so from their point of view, it was a religious thing. We are God's chosen people, they would assert, and they were. And you are not, and the others weren't. And so because of that, you are Gentiles. And it was a term of derision. That's what it was. But the term had carried such weight with it that no Jew, uh, no Roman or Greek would be called a Gentile. Uh, they knew that there were negative connotations with that term, and so they would back away and say, no, I'm not a Gentile. Paul says, remember that you were a Gentile. You were a Gentile, and he goes on to explain, uh, called the uncircumcision, in quotes, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul is saying, you were a Gentile, number one. Number two, people called you names. Who called you names? Those who have been circumcised, sign of the Old Testament covenants between Abraham, David, and, 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 the, and God and the people. Sign of that covenant, you were circumcised. So these are circumcised Jews, meaning they're connected with God, and they're looking at all the people who are disconnected from God and calling them uncircumcised. So these are bullied people. These are people who are being called names. Paul continues, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. You were apart from Christ. So they are bullied and separated people. This isn't a pretty rosy picture that Paul paints. Uh, He goes on to say, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So they are bullied, separated, alienated. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel means you lack what the commonwealth of Israel has. And that word commonwealth means citizen. Israel had certain benefits because they were citizens. They uh, had certain benefits, and and the non-Jews did not. You're alienated from that, and finally, strangers to the covenants of promise. When God said to Abraham, I'll bless you and all your descendants, Gentiles were not included. You and I were not included. When God said to David, I make this covenant with you, you and I were not included in that. Now, we don't think of that these days, nor did the Ephesians think of it much. And just in case you say, well, Jerry, that really doesn't affect me. I I'm, I'm really honestly don't care that, that I would be called uncircumcised. I don't care that, that I am uh, not part of this Jewish thing that's going on. As many of Paul's readers would have said, but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, having no hope and without God in the world. All right, it's one thing to be alienated. It's another thing to be separated. It's another thing to be bullied. But it is an entirely different thing to be hopeless and godless. And that's who we were. You see, the reality is that we have come into this place most often with these super uh, inflated ideas of ourselves. We have a tendency to think we're pretty good, that we could figure things out, that we would never do what so-and-so has done. We would never go where so-and-so is going. But the reality is, apart from Christ, separated from Christ, we are hopeless and we are godless. The reality is, there are people sitting in the room today, and as you sit here this morning, you have done things in your life that 10 years ago you never ever thought you would ever do. 
You have said things you never thought you would ever say. You have gone places you've never thought you'd, you would ever go. You have watched things you have never thought you would ever watch. The reality is that apart from Christ, we are hopeless and godless. That's what Paul is saying. That is who we were. Now, why should we remember? Is the effect of remembering to beat ourselves up? No, that isn't the effect. That is the ultimate of self-centeredness. You see, remembering is not a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea. If you go to the Old Testament, you're going to see some passages of Scripture on the screen. Deuteronomy 5.15. Check out this verse. Therefore remember, uh, I'm sorry, let's go to Deuteronomy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God says to Israel, when you're resting, don't forget that this day of rest that I gave you, you had no days of rest in Egypt. There was no Sabbath. You were a slave and you were beaten. Look at Deuteronomy 15. If we go to Deuteronomy 15, verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. In light of Deuteronomy 15, uh, they are to remember that so that they know how to treat other people who are strangers and foreigners and widows. Let's keep trucking. And as we do, we will see in Deuteronomy 16, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. What were the statutes in Deuteronomy 16? Take care of the widow, take care of the orphan, take care of the stranger who is among you. As a matter of fact, when you celebrate the Feast of Weeks, I think that's either 15 or 16, when you celebrate the Feast of Weeks, this awesome feast, and everybody's celebrating together, what God says to Israel is, don't you celebrate and leave your servants out here not to celebrate with you. Or the foreigner, don't leave the foreigner out. Or the widow who can't celebrate. Or or the orphan who can't celebrate. You bring them all in because you were once a slave, he says. The fact of who you were ought to motivate you. He keeps on uh, uh, making the point in uh, Deuteronomy 24, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. To do what? To uh, To treat the orphans and the widows and the foreigners in the right way. Here is the point. Here is the point. Remembering who we were ought to motivate us to gratitude, not guilt. Gratitude, not guilt. The point isn't to make you feel guilty and like, ah, oh, you were such a loser. That's not the point. The point isn't the point, wow, I, I remember where I used to, and, and wallow in that, God has no desire for you to do that. Absolutely zero desire. You ought to be moved to gratitude, not guilt. Number two, the point of remembering is to move you to compassion, not condemnation. To compassion, not condemnation. Why? These, these people who used to be slaves now have servants of their own. These people who used to be foreigners in a strange land now have foreigners coming into their land. What is the tendency? The real easy tendency is to look at those people and say, well, look where they are and, and look what they've done. And I would never. What? You would never? You did. How is it that you could say you would never when you actually did? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten where you were in your sin? Have you become so theologically astute? Has your mind become so filled with the knowledge of God that you have lost sight of the grace of God? 
as your mind becomes so filled with the, the list of things that you now are able to do because of the power of Christ that lives in you, that you see somebody else who isn't checking things off the list like you are. And all of a sudden, you who were once condemned, who has now been cleared by Christ, become the condemner, and you look at that person and go, wow, you know, if they would get their act together and figure this thing out, things wouldn't be so messy around here. You see, our remembering isn't to bring guilt, it is to uh, bring gratitude. Our remembering isn't to bring condemnation, it is to engender a result in compassion. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Don't wallow in it, but a rearview mirror look is appropriate on a pretty consistent basis. In Deuteronomy and Ephesians 2. Now, as we look at that, what happens? But now, I love those little words in Scripture, those connective words. I'm teaching preaching at Montreat this fall, and we're going to talk about this very week on Tuesday night, connective words in Scripture. The conjunctions, those little tiny words pack great punch. But now. If you're writing your Bibles, you ought to underline those. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of Christ. Wow, you were so far from God. I was so far from God. And I have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for he himself, tiny, another tiny, just two little pronouns, for he himself. It's repeated in the Greek. Why is it? To give emphasis. All of this passage turns on those three single words. The whole passage. If these words are excluded, we are still hopeless. We are still godless. We are still helpless. We are Gentiles. We are excluded. We are alienated. We are separated. But when you have for he himself, it means literally he, comma, for he That's what it literally means. Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. Number one, you got to remember who you were. Number two, you got to know who Christ Jesus is. Who is he? He is our peace. He is our peace. Uh, In what way? Well, there are a lot of commas and supporting clauses, so let's figure it out. He himself is our peace who has made both uh, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you look to dictionary.com for the definition of peace, here's what you'll find. First four definitions of peace all have to do with war. All have to do with enmity and strife. Why is that? You cannot define peace except by what it isn't. That's the reality. Peace is not as much what it is as what it isn't. And peace isn't war. Peace isn't strife. Peace is the destruction of hostility. The hostility between who? Between us and the Jews, first of all. Between this great divide that was built between us and the Jews, God's chosen people, Jesus is our peace between us and the Jews. And number two, Jesus is our peace between us and God. He is the peace between us and God. That's what the passage says. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall 
of hostility. Jesus is our peace before Christ, before you knew Christ, even if you came to Christ at the age of nine. If little Silas comes to Christ when he's 10 years old, somewhere between now and 10 years old, he will blow it. Right, Sharice? He'll blow it. Yeah, he will. He'll have an attitude. He'll act like his daddy. Whatever it is, he'll blow it. Somewhere between now and then, trouble's coming, right? So he will be at enmity, believe it or not, with God. But when little Silas becomes older Silas and gives his life to Christ, that enmity will be gone and he will be at peace with God. That dividing wall of hostility between Silas and God, broken down. Between Caroline and God, broken down. Between you and God, broken down. Now how does it happen? Paul is not going to leave us in the dark here. This is packed full of stuff. This is like eating a dessert that's in about five layers. And you think the first layer is good until you hit the second. And then when you hit the third, and by the time you hit that crunchy bottom that had stuff in it that you never thought of, which is held together by butter, (laughs) you think, wow, that's how this passage is. We're we're like on, on Cool Whip layer, all right? We haven't got to crunchy butter with, you know, holding everything together. It's amazing how this, how this passage unfolds here and what God is trying to say through Paul to these people. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so make him peace. So how did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What is he talking about? The Old Testament law. The Old Testament law found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Want some good nighttime reading that could cause you to doze off? Some of you reading through the Bible? Wait till you get to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and your your eyebrows will raise at some point and you'll think, why was the law necessary here? Why are there so many of them? Five to six hundred of those laws. Uh, Why are there so many of them? Why, Why are they so stringent? Why does this look like this is totally impossible for me to do? See, you have the letter of the law and the heart of the law, and the letter of the law is tough enough itself. But then Jesus came along. Have you ever noticed this in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus came along, and and he would say these these words. Watch this pattern develop in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You have heard it said, comma, but I say to you. Now, what was Jesus quoting? He was quoting the law. What did he say? You have heard it said, Do not commit adultery. Okay, that's the law. And by that law, some of you have broken it. You have sadly broken that law. But then Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery or a woman who does the reverse. And by that, law we're all adulterers oh jared no yeah you jesus said you have heard it said do not murder by that law probably none of us are murderers comma but i say to you that everyone who slanders someone else with his tongue, has committed murder in his heart. And by that law, 
we're all murderers. Okay. Now go do prison ministry and think you're better than they are. Right? Now sit in your, in your uh, uh, living room and watch the news and think, I could never do that. Jesus said, you have. All of a sudden, we who were feeling somewhat comfortable are squirming, aren't we? Because we either believe what Jesus said or we don't. And he called us out and said, we're all murderers and we're all adulterers. So what are we going to do? If somebody doesn't come and make peace and break down the hostility between a whole bunch of murderers and a whole bunch of adulterers and a God who has nothing to do with murder and adultery, we're going to hell in our sin and no one is excluded. No one. So, so now we're listening. Now we who were out here on the outside looking in thinking, oh, it's the law. Now all of a sudden, we're listening. Now our church membership doesn't matter that much, does it? If it doesn't change our hearts. Now all of a sudden, the southern rituals that we have. You see, this whole series is about the church. Where does the church figure in? Look at this. He himself is our peace. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. I want to give you two, one passage and one word. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. We need some relief. I'm feeling crazy uncomfortable. I don't like being called a murderer or an adulterer. Those things put me out of sorts. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore what? Now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh-oh. We might have some good news flowing out here. There was a law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? You sin, you what? Die. You sin, you die. And the law had no effect to make people better. It only showed them what they were getting wrong. The law of sin and death. The law that says if you look at a woman, you're an adulterer. If you lust after her, you're an adulterer. The law that says if you slander the, the teacher who's three rooms down, you've become a murderer. The law that, that says those things that, that Jesus lifted up and made impossible for every all those religious people listening to him were just aghast that he would call them out like that. That was the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ. There's a new law now. It's called the spirit of life in Christ. Has set you free from what? The law of sin and death. For God has done over here what the law over here weakened by the flesh could not do. How did he do it? By sending his son. How? In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
Whose flesh? Jesus' flesh. Where? On the cross. So that the righteous requirement of the law over here might be fulfilled in us over here who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? The Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, because I couldn't do this. I am a murderer. I am an adulterer. I am a sinner of the worst kind. Now, how did he do it? He did it through cross, did it through the cross of Christ. Did it stop at the cross? No, there's a tiny little word. He created. He created. That word created is the same word used to describe uh, in the beginning, God created. When you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament and you look at the Greek word here, same word. What did he create? A new, a new creation called the church. He created the church. And you and I have thought so little and so lightly of the church. We have underestimated the church. We have thought the church is simply an organization, or we are, um, we're, we're a corporation, or we are a social club, or we are what you do on Sunday morning. No, no, the church is as glorious in its creation as creation is. It's the same word. You walk out and you see the beautiful snow that was falling in Black Mountain this morning. Or last night, the moon that rises above the mountains and casts its glow over the mountains. And you glory in the creation of God. You ought to walk in here, look around and go, there's Bill Rockliffe. Whoa, boy, God did a good one there. Creation, look what he is now. Look who he used to be. You look around and you see, you see each other and you go, wow, God, look what you're doing. Amen? All we do is we know ourselves and we say, God, you're creating this out of this. I mean, you started with nothing and created that. But man, you got to start with a mess to create this. That's what he's done. Do you know that's why you should join a local church? Because we locally represent uh, uh, cosmologically what God is doing. We locally represent that. That's why church membership is huge. It's so important. You shouldn't just sit back in the wings and watch everything that's happening. No, you ought to jump in. That's why we have a covenant at this church. That's why. You can look it up on our website. Why do we do that? Church membership is huge. Why? This isn't a social club. This isn't like joining the Y. I'm there right now. Everybody's at the Y right now. Why? Because it's January. All right? Everybody's at the Y in January. You just look around. Everybody's working out. Come March, guess what? You can find parking spaces anywhere. All the machines are open. Why? Well, all that wore off, you know? Just wore off. But it's January. And I don't mean to discourage you. You've just gone keep up, all right? Not intended to do that. But, but that's the reality. Church isn't that way, is it? No. Church is God's creation, God's masterpiece, God's answer for a hopeless, godless, separated, alienated, bullied world is his church. Wow. Isn't that awesome? He says, this is who you were. And might reconcile us both to God in one body, that's the church, through the cross, killing the hostility. He preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Uh, those who were far off 
Everybody in the room, Gentiles. Those who were near, all the Jews. Guess what? Though they were near, they were still separate. They didn't realize it. Separated, alienated, godless, hopeless, helpless. And Jesus preached peace through the cross to them and preached peace through the cross to us. Reminds me of one of, one of the coolest chapters in all of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 9. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, David has become king. He has fled from Saul for seven years. But there is a beautiful friendship between David and Saul that took place prior. Fantastic friendship. And uh, you can read about it uh, between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. And, and so this great friendship that took place, Jonathan gets killed uh, and... Uh, and, and Saul just wreaks havoc over the country. And finally, David, after seven years, becomes king. And when he does, he asks this question. I love it. Verse 9, and David said, Is there still anyone left out the house of Saul? Now, if you've run from somebody for seven years, your first inclination would be, and you're a powerful king, is there anybody left in Saul's family? Because I'm going to take him out. I'm going to get rid of any threat of rebellion. What does he say? Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was my friend. Is there anybody left? And so they go searching, and they find a guy named Ziba, who is a servant to a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son and when they find Mephibosheth Jonathan's son who is Saul's grandson David orders him to come in and when David orders him to come in how do you think Mephibosheth is feeling at this point might we say scared why is he afraid because his grandfather has made his grandfather has made David's life miserable and what unfolds here is amazing. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I mean, David, why me? You are the king. I am the grandson of the guy who wreaked havoc on your life. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table. I love this. I love this. Like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Look at the closing 
perfunctory remark. Now he was lame in both his feet. Could you imagine the scene? I've shared this with you before I know Chuck Swindoll. I remember hearing him describing it this way the first time I ever heard it. But could you imagine the king and all his dignitaries is having a royal dinner. He has invited guests from other countries and regions to join him. The table is set and the dignitaries are honored to be in King David's dining hall in his presence when all of a sudden you hear a noise and it's coming down the, the, the marble floors of that massive palace and it is a thump and a drag and a thump and a drag and a thump and the crutches go down and into that massive banquet hall enters Mephibosheth. And the dignitaries elbow one another and say, who's that? Who's he? Uh, He's Saul's Saul's grandson? Yeah, he, he always, the regulars at the table, oh, he always eats with us. He always eats at the king's table. Why? Because Mephibosheth is all that? No, he's, he's a dead dog in his own opinion, lame in both feet, grandson of the guy who taunted Saul. How can he eat at the, at, at the king's table? Because of who his daddy is. That's the only reason. Jonathan. It's the only reason you and I eat at the king's table. Because Christ is our peace. you got to know who Jesus is fully, completely. He is our peace. Are we lame? Yeah, both feet. Do we struggle? Yes. When we come in to eat, sometimes we come in just, just crippled, and we come in maimed, and we come in de- deformed, and we come to Christ with so much junk and so much mess, but we eat at the king's table anyway. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, uh, King's table. Verse 19, this is who we are. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. There are three images that uh, just kind of erupt out of this passage. There are three metaphors. This is a bunch of mixed metaphors. You need to write them down, jot them down, think them through. Uh, you are citizens. That means you, got, you get voting privileges, voting rights. Uh, you're not... Uh, not uh, second-class person. You're citizens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. Number two, members of the household of God, your family. When you know Christ, when you receive Christ as your Savior, when you look to the cross and see a dying Jesus who died for you, and you receive him as your Savior, you're citizens of the kingdom, number one. Number two, you're members in the family. You're in your sons and daughters, you eat at the king's table. And number three, you're the temple built on the foundation without even warning us. Paul changes the metaphor in uh, verse 20. Built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you have a cornerstone. That means the plumb lines for the building go from that cornerstone. And then, then you, you have prophets and, and, and apostles, Paul and all Peter, the rest. And then the building is built. And guess what? In, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're also being built together as a dwelling place for God. The building is still being built. 
there are stones being added every day. Every day, here comes a lost, wayward person, dead dog, sinner, lost in sin, and and is put into the building. All over the world, the building hasn't stopped. All over the world. Reminded me of this old hymn that I've shared with you before. Written, I think, in 1759. So worth sharing again. Starts out like this. And this is our invitation to you. Praise team, you guys come on up and let's be ready. But this is our invitation to you. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, Please get this till you're better. You will never come at all. Did you get that? If you think I'll fix myself up, you can't do that any more than Mephibosheth could make his lame legs walk. You come dragging your lameness before the Lord if you tarry till you're better. You will never come at all. View him. This goes right with the sermon. You've got to know who he is. View Jesus prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended. That's where he is now. Pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Completely. Let no other trust intrude. You cannot trust in yourself. You cannot trust in, 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 in false decisions you've made. You cannot trust in your own religion. They're all lameness. Trust him wholly. Trust him completely. And do you know what the response of this great hymn written in 1759? I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's the response. Will you arise? Will you come to Christ? Will you feel his embrace? Nobody's loved you like he can love you. Nobody's done for you what he has done for you. No one has died on the cross for you. No one has laid prostrate in the garden uh, so that he would weep and moan on your behalf. No one. Why would you not come to him? Why not? Why would you not come to him? Let's stand. We're going to sing of our need for him. If you don't know him this morning, don't walk out of this place lost.
Don't walk out of this place self-righteous. Don't walk out of this place with some idea of your own righteousness apart from Christ. 